Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by Spalding University's Sina Jeter Naslin, Karen Mann Graduate School of Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. The issue of school choice will be discussed statewide in 2024. The idea behind school choice, advocates say, is to give all parents the ability to choose whichever school or learning environment best meets their child's needs, regardless of whether it's public or private. In some cases, taxpayer funds for education follow the child in the form of vouchers or savings accounts that can be used towards schools that require tuition. Just this week, a judge struck down legislation that would have funded charter schools in Kentucky. Franklin Circuit Judge Philip Shepard issued an order this week finding that House Bill 9, which set up a funding mechanism for charter schools in the state, violated the Kentucky Constitution. Charter schools, schools that are publicly funded but operated by independent groups, with fewer regulations than most public schools, are technically legal in Kentucky, but House Bill 9 would have created a mechanism for funding them with public dollars. Kentucky Humanities partnered with Kentucky Youth Advocates, a statewide children's advocacy organization, to facilitate a discussion of the school choice issue. In Louisville, for a two-day event, was writer-journalist Kara Fitzpatrick, author of The Death of Public School, How Conservatives Won the War Over Education in America. The following is a conversation taped at the Kentucky Youth Advocates podcast studio, The first voice you will hear is the executive director of KYA, Dr. Terry Brooks. Hello, this is Terry Brooks with Kentucky Youth Advocates. Welcome to our podcast today featuring author Kara Fitzpatrick, whose recent book, The Death of Public Schools, colon, How Conservatives Won the War, uh, offers an animating look at that particular issue nationally and carries real implications for us in Kentucky. So thanks for joining us. I'm especially pleased that we're being joined by Bill Goodman, Executive Director of the Kentucky Humanities Council. Uh, KYA partnered with the Humanities Council for two days of a very busy schedule for Kara, uh, where she had a chance to meet with a broad range of community groups to talk about school choice on a national basis and potentially how that might play out in Kentucky. Thank you, Terry. You're welcome, Bill. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, I do want to take just a second uh, and make sure we're all on the same page. And uh, rarely am I confident uh, in a prediction about Frankfurt politics, but on this one, I have a high degree of certainty. And that is that there will be a constitutional amendment passed uh, to be put on the ballot by the General Assembly. That particular bill inevitably will be vetoed by Governor Bashir, and that veto will be quickly overridden by the Republican supermajority in both houses. What does that mean? That means that come next November, as well as voting for president, you're going to be voting 
whether to allow school choice in Kentucky schools or not. And that's frankly where the Humanities Council and KYA saw such an opportunity to bring Kara in to both share her expertise and also cause us to think more deeply. So, Kara, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Welcome to Kentucky. Thanks for having me. Terry, before we go any further, may I offer a prediction? Sure. When people have an opportunity to pick up the death of public school and look uh, at uh, the work that uh, Kara's done, um, they will be so impressed with uh, the history, the research, and the uh, step-by-step uh, that she takes you through uh, the entire nation uh, and, and how it applies uh, to not only the United States, as you mentioned, but how it applies to Kentucky and to Jefferson County. It's just a very well-researched uh, book uh, written by a journalist, and we'll talk a little bit more about how all that happened, but it uh, – is uh, an excellent uh, read, an excellent uh, book that people will not only enjoy, but they'll learn something from it. Ab- and that's always a key. Absolutely. Thank Kara, you. That, Thank that, you. That's yeah. very kind. Well, that leads to the opening question. And we're, we're going to get into policy and politics in just a second. But before we get into politics and policy, I want to get into process, because uh, I heard you say at one point that this was a, a six-year endeavor. Uh, take us through, first of all, what in the heck motivated you around this topic, and how did you go about tackling it? Uh, so I was a reporter in Florida for about ten years, and as part of that, I spent, you know, I spent a lot of time writing about segregation, um, public school segregation, actually. But Florida has been a laboratory for school choice for at least twenty years, and so when I was interviewing families about, um, you know, being in these sort of segregated, under-resourced traditional public schools, one of the things that kept coming up was this idea of of families looking for other options and sort of fleeing these particular schools. And so they would go to charter schools or they would go to another traditional public school or a magnet school, um, or they would use some kind of private school choice option to go to a private school. And it didn't really get into the work I was doing then. It wasn't really about that, but it stayed in my mind, you know, that that this was potentially a solution or an option, you know, um, for for some of these families and and for these schools. And so I just had this question of, well, is what is school choice? Where did it come from? And is it a solution to sort of these systemic issues? And that's that's what kind of started it all off. And I think to um the argument um, or the narrative that you put together, Kara, uh, uh, really began at the proper place, um, uh, which was the history of the movement. But you didn't go all the way back uh, to the founding fathers, although you do reference that there is mention of that in the in the the first writing of the Constitution. Uh, but you started in in the fifties. So tell us a little bit about the the background of what led you to. Uh, the modern day discussion of of school choice and the writing that you did. Yeah, one of the things that I was sort of fascinated by in starting the research 
was that you essentially heard two different origin stories for school choice, depending on your view on choice. And so people who were in favor of school choice would often talk about Milton Friedman, a Nobel Prize winning economist and a conservative who had proposed um, a school voucher system in the 1950s, actually. And then you also would hear from um, more progressive liberal voices who were opposed to choice who would talk about, well, this has its roots in in segregation. You know, it has this ugly history. And I thought, well, how do you square these two stories? And and what does this mean? And and so I, I spent some time trying to figure out where to start. And ultimately, I did decide that it made sense to start in the 50s because you did have Milton Friedman, but you also had segregationists, you know, at the same time trying to get around school desegregation after Brown versus Board. And then you also actually had this lesser known figure that doesn't get talked about a lot, um, Virgil Bloom, who was a priest who was making arguments around religious liberty. And I thought it's so interesting to have have sort of these three different ideas for how to use essentially the same tool and that it would be so different. Um, and that, and then also that you see some of those threads still today, some of those same arguments about religion and about segregation, you know, and about market-driven um, competition. Well, I was going to ask as a follow-up, uh, uh, Terry, um, so, so the modern-day uh, argument that we hear um, are there still parts of the the Friedman Bloom uh, argument and statements uh, that that uh, the uh, the modernist in the school choice movement have have uh, grasped, or have they have they taken that model and and changed it somewhat and, and been more aggressive in uh, forwarding their own thoughts and theories about school choice? A lot of it is still the same, interestingly. There's still a lot of conversation about competition and the market um, and this sort of Friedman idea. One of the things that Friedman was in favor of was vouchers for everyone. You know, he wanted everyone to have a, bar- a voucher regardless of income. And that is actually a, a notable shift in the last few years where Republicans have been successfully passing um, in a number of states universal vouchers. Um, and then the the Bloom ideas around religious liberty, he actually in a lot of ways was very ahead of his time. He was making arguments about, you know, how you could win at the Supreme Court on this issue and and that it should be actually more about religious liberty and religious freedom and discrimination than about sort of the establishment clause of, of the First Amendment. And those are now the the arguments that we're seeing the U.S. Supreme Court make, you know, decades after Virgil Bloom was talking about it. So all of those things are still very relevant. So going to where we stand today, uh, we in Kentucky, I think it's fair to say, have a fairly limited view of school choice. Uh, There was a lot of discussion a few years ago about charters. And while that passed, we have not seen charters become a reality uh, on the landscape of Kentucky. Uh, there was an effort made a couple years ago around tax savings for low-income kids that ran into judicial review. So when we talk about school choice in Kentucky, it's still more theoretical and visionary than a reality. I'm wondering if you could take us inside of just a couple states that might offer uh, an illustrative portrait of where school choice could go. So I know you've talked about uh, 
the range of things that are happening in Florida, uh, as well as some other states. So, give us a give us a a, a portrait of how school choice might play out in a couple other states. I think Florida is always an interesting one, and I might be a touch biased because I lived there for a you know a period of time. But I think uh, school choice advocates often hold up Florida as one of the models for this. You know where you have a very robust school choice sector, um, you know, and and still fairly successful public schools. And so there's a lot of talk around Florida. But they have, you know, they had charter schools first, and then um, they've had a variety of different private school choice options from sort of the tax credit model, um, you know, to sort of the more pure Friedman style voucher. Um, and then now this very new idea or relatively new idea of the education savings account. And so Florida has kind of done it all in a way um, and has also expanded who is eligible for those programs. And now most recently it has become universal and they've also, you know, even included homeschooling in that. So I think for a lot of choice advocates, that is is the model of where this could go and where they think it's working very well. I think Arizona is another one that's similar. Um, and Arizona was the first to kind of pioneer this education savings account idea, which is a more flexible voucher in a way. It's um, it's basically you get an account with money in it and you can use it for a variety of options, you know, from homeschooling to online classes to private school tuition. And it has basically the most flexibility um, for parents. And Arizona is another one where they've really, um, you know, had that model kind of take off. So most states that have embraced school choice, it sounds like that they use multiple models, a more comprehensive approach that they don't, uh, so to speak, cherry pick. We're going to do just tax credits or just charters. It's a more full-on approach. Well, I think it's because of how it's developed over time, because there there was a point in time with, with this where it wasn't clear sort of what was legal. You know, there were constitutional questions. And I so I think it, it wasn't necessarily intended to be this kind of buffet of choice options. It was just trying to figure out what would pass muster with the courts. And then charter schools had kind of a different evolution because that was intended to be a public option outside of school districts, but still very much a public school. And so in some ways, the charter school was actually held up as an idea that could be used as an alternative to vouchers, something that seemed probably more legally safe mm-hmm. And 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 possibly more palatable to people who are not very comfortable with with tax dollars going to private Private schools. I'm curious, Kara, about Floridians and whether or not they have uh, accepted school choice now and the different options that they're afforded as the norm, or are there still questions? Um, uh, about change, or are they at a place where are they plateaued at a place where they accept it, and that's their school system? You know, it's hard to to speak broadly about all Floridians. I think there are there are areas where people are still very much opposed and and very conflicted. Certainly, in the public school districts, there's a lot of opposition, and also concern about this shift to where everyone is eligible. You know, where all students are eligible, uh, regardless of income. There's some concern about that. 
simply because before when it was somewhat limited to low-income students or students with disabilities, that maybe had a lesser effect in some ways on the budgets of school districts. But this idea that any child could use an education savings account. I think there's there's areas where people are very concerned about that. And then, of course, obviously, you know, in Florida, there's a lot of conservatives who are very pleased with the development. I think some parents appreciate having all of these different options. Do uh, they have any problems at all in paying for uh, this? I mean, Florida is a, a very wealthy state. They have um, a, a, a robust... Um, uh, budget. Um, they've done quite well um, to the point that uh, the the governor is even uh, taking on the uh, mighty mouse uh, and doesn't <laughs> seem to be um, uh, afraid to do so. Um, but contrast Flor Florida to to uh, a, a rural state as we are in Kentucky, a poor state. Um, there has to be uh, some. Uh, logic or uh, thinking along those lines about how Kentucky would pay for such a a panoply, such a a menu of options that might be uh, offered to uh, our school systems. Yeah, I think you know, even in Florida, even in Arizona, there's concerns about the costs of this drive for universal, in part because some of the projections came in when they were talking about passing this legislation, some of the projections for cost came in lower than what actually now is playing out. Now that they're in the process of really trying this out, some of the costs are a lot higher than anticipated. And so it's kind of this awkward position of, of Republicans arguing for spending a lot of money on, on these programs. Um, that's still kind of playing out you know, I think states are having these conversations about how are we going to pay for this. The other sort of wrinkle is that in both Arizona and Florida, many of the kids who took them up on this idea of the the universal education savings account or voucher were already in private school. And so there's there's kind of a uncomfortable conversation happening about whether or not it makes sense as public policy to pay for private school for for families who maybe already were. We're paying for it. And so I think if you're in a place like Kentucky that maybe has fewer financial resources, those questions are going to be of huge importance. I'm wondering, Kara, uh, if – so you've talked about Florida, talked about Arizona, talked about some other float places, and you've been in Kentucky for a couple days. So clearly you're now an expert on the Commonwealth. Uh, just contextually, you've you've – Listen to a lot of people. You've talked to a variety of folks with a variety of views. Can you take what you're seeing nationally and contextualize it? What What's the uh, from your external ears? Uh, what do you think the Kentucky context is? What What are you hearing from Kentuckians? Well, first, it's been lovely to be here. So I've learned a lot about Kentucky while I've been here. Um, For our it's... listeners, Kara is very committed to delivering good bourbon to her husband <laughs> on her return. So that's not why just, I came. Just, just want but... to emphasize that that <laughs> Kentuckyizes not... you, that legitimizes <laughs> you with our listeners. It's not why I came to Kentucky, but it certainly made it easier to make the case to my husband. Um, you know, as opposed to when I went to Wisconsin, and yeah, although cheese, they had cheese, cheese I yeah, did bring. That's... Home cheese from Wisconsin. Yeah, that's, that's not so exciting. I, I don't think he was as excited about that as the bourbon. But um, 
I, you know, Kentucky occupies kind of an interesting space in this right now because it has some of the ingredients to where you would think that a, a school choice bill might be likely and, and successful. Um, but you have a state constitution that is a, if you're a proponent of choice, is a much higher barrier um, than in than in some other states, you know, Michigan is one also where the state constitution has has been problematic for advocates of choice, um, you know, and and you've seen that play out in your court system where things have passed and then have been, you know, the the yeah the the Supreme Court has said not so fast, and so I I find that really interesting, you know, that you have some of the ingredients for it. But that constitution is a real hurdle or, you know, if you're opposed to this, a real safeguard. You know, if uh, I can, Terry, to, to dig a little bit deeper there without getting too far into the weeds. But I really think that's an interesting point. Uh, we do a segment at Kentucky Humanities uh, called Think History. And we um, so 1792 statehood, there were uh, a couple of uh, state conventions, uh, the original uh, capital was in Danville. Uh, it moved to, to, as you know now, in Frankfurt. But what was it about the original signatories of the the Constitution, or maybe it was done at, at a constitutional convention? Uh, that's what I'm asking you, because you've taken so much uh, interest in our state uh, coming here. You had some time, I think, uh, in a layover in the airport to, to read uh, something that, that all Kentuckians should read, that we should be more well-versed in, and that's our state constitution. What was it about our constitution that makes it uh, a little bit more of a, a, a difficulty for school choice advocates to immediately pass amendment or, or get it through the legislature and then and then on um, the ballot passed and, and, and approved? This is sort of uh, getting into the weeds, but something I was. But I think it's important. But though. something I was interested in too when I was doing the research, um, you know, as I began to learn more about some of the legal history around school choice, is just that every you know the the U.S. Constitution doesn't really address education. It's it's really left to the states, and so every state constitution has some way of saying we're going to provide an education to our kids. But the way that they describe it varies quite a bit. And the and those very key words end up actually, you know, decades later coming back to be very important in some of these court cases in a way that probably no one really foresaw. Um, you know, and so in Kentucky, this idea of common schools, that the state is responsible for common schools and what that means and how it gets interpreted legally is is really what it comes down to because in other states you know this this same issue kind of came up in in Florida with one of their very first uh, voucher programs and in that state the some of the relevant language was that they needed to provide a uniform system of education and so the there was all of this uh, legal conversation about well what does that mean is the can you provide a uniform system and also something else is the uniform system the floor of what we provide or is it the only thing that we provide and and that you know um, it got vouchers one of the first programs there overturned actually by the by the state Supreme Court and then later you know there's different people on the court and they interpret it in a different way and um, so so here that idea of common schools is really a lot of what it what it hinges on what is a common school am I correct in that that 
the the word education is not in the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, it's not the it, the framers didn't really provide for. They did not. No, left it to the states. Yeah. So in in your thinking today, uh, can common equate to the question I asked you last night, traditional uh, or public? Uh, can common be? Um, uh, can we take common out and put in traditional or put in public uh, in our state constitution? Is that what our Supreme Court based their ruling on? That seems to be what they're basing it on. But it's interesting because these things are are open to interpretation and have been interpreted in different ways by the courts. Um, so, you know, if there is some effort to change that language, then it it opens up a whole new set of issues. Um, but it's conceivable that a different makeup on the court also could, you know, that you could leave the language and and it would just simply be interpreted differently by, you know, different members of the court. That's very much a possibility as well. At Spalding University's Low Residency MFA program, Creative writing students come to campus for an exciting week of learning each semester, followed by independent study from home that fits in with work and family life. Write prolifically, explore across genres, gain editorial experience on a literary journal, and become part of a lifelong writing community. Writers thrive at Spalding's Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. So we've looked nationally. Now we've looked at Kentucky. So I want to shift back nationally. And if you were to predict sort of the next chapter of this, because what, I, what, I, what you've done is just a wonderful job of a historical perspective, looking at different facets of school choice, uh, I'm curious, uh, you know, from your lens, even though the book's published, my guess is you're still following this topic. So what's bubbling out there? You know, in our conversations, for instance, uh, you've mentioned the potential of religious charter schools. That may be one. There may be some others. So I'm, I'm curious if you could share with our our listeners sort of a be on the lookout for and fill in that blank. One of the things that was so difficult about writing a book about this is that at a certain point, you have to actually turn over the finished book to the publisher and let them publish it. And yet the news was nonstop all throughout. And and so this idea of the religious charter school is not even in the book. And it happened within months of, of me turning over, you know, sort of the final yeah. uh, proof to the publisher. I need and, another and, chapter. I need another yeah, chapter. Yeah, and it was just, it was maddening. It was like, can I update the introduction? Can I, you know, and and some of that I think will just have to be saved for for a paperback edition or some, uh, some kind of, some kind of edition. But I, you know, I had someone come up to me at an event in Florida and and say, you know, you've got to include the, the micro schools and you've got to, you know, and, and, and it's, it's like, well, it's all there, really. The making so, of these so take just are there. one second. I, I don't want to interrupt you, yeah. but I am um, because I think that's a fascinating concept that I didn't know about. So maybe our listeners don't. What's what's micro school? Yeah, so they my, have a lot of microscopes, or what, what's the deal? <laughs> micro school is it's 
used in different ways by different people. So we'll put that out there first. Sometimes that essentially means just a very tiny school. You know, maybe your kid is one of five and you have the one teacher. It's very tiny. It's it's almost sort of like a homeschooling co-op in a way. Um, and then also I've seen and visited one in Florida where it was basically a, a sort of a school set up in a sort of a strip mall. Um, and it was 80% of the kids were homeschoolers and they were using some of the the state tax dollars from these education savings accounts to basically buy individual classes. And so, you know, maybe they're homeschooled 80% of the time, but but mom or dad doesn't feel comfortable teaching math. And so they come here and they learn math for an hour on all, Wednesday. All a court curriculum. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because someone used that language with me, this a la carte idea. And it's actually language that I had used in the book, this idea of sort of purchasing education that you need or your child needs in a market sort of environment. And that was that was very much sort of the model of that that school that I visited in Florida. So I took you off track. You I, did. I apologize. So <laughs> get back. So religious charter schools, are you, you think that's an issue that's bubbling? I mean, I think that's one of the big ones that I'm going to be watching um, because it is a really startling development. There's a ton of really in-depth, weedy legal questions around that. I think there's some open question as to if if a case involving a religious charter school reaches the U.S. Supreme Court, what the court will do based on some of these more recent rulings. Um, and that also is just one that has really large potential for affecting a lot of states because, you know, we have the District of Columbia, and we have about 45 states that have charter schools. And in some of those states, they're, they are more blue, and they don't at all want anything to do with religious charter schools. But if the court says that's okay, then they may be put in a position of having to allow that. And so it's just this huge, you know, wrinkle, complicated issue, but it's probably going to play out over a series of, you know, of either multiple court cases or a number of years, probably both. Kara, you... Um have, as I said at the very beginning, uh, done such a, 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 a good job uh, on this book. I mean, it's so well-researched and, and you, you spend a lot of time on it. Uh, oftentimes uh, on uh, the podcast I do for Kentucky Humanities, um, I really, uh, I think listeners uh, like to know about the process a bit. And uh, as a journalist, a lot of stories, um, a lot of Books, uh, a lot of novellas uh, grow out of a uh, a story that the reporter has covered, or uh, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, or or uh, and just just take a minute to to describe when you first thought that this might be something that you would like to to spend the time that you've spent on it, and um, and and how how all that happened. Uh, you were a uh, part of a team that won a the the Pulitzer Prize for reporting. Uh, in Florida uh, for the uh, Tampa newspaper, uh, which uh, many, many journalists and reporters around the country are are very envious of and are always looking uh, for that uh, golden ring, um, uh, w- which y- you could have rested on your laurels from that point and just gone on and, and uh, done something else. But you decided to delve into this subject. And uh, this book, I'm... Uh, Going out on the limb here will probably result in some awards down the road of some sort that uh, you will be very proud of. Um, what was it about this story that you thought deserves the 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 time that you took and the the the, the research that you put in to to put it together? 
Well, so I'll just say when my, my father-in-law visited recently and, and my husband's also a journalist and, and was involved in that project that won the Pulitzer and we were running around busy as usual and and he said something like, you guys really don't rest on your laurels. And and so it's funny, it's funny that you say that. Um, I'm I'm due for a spa vacation of some kind, but um, but you know I I'm an education reporter. I've always been an education reporter, and and well, minus a few years at the beginning, and and I find it interesting and important and relevant to a degree and a level of weediness that I think a lot of my dinner companions do not find it interesting and relevant and important. But this was an area where I felt like there wasn't, you know, there were a lot of partisan books about school choice. I'd read many of them. There were a lot of accounts from from different people, academics and advocates and, you know, who had taken a side. And I feel like in our very political and polarizing environment right now and and when I started it that you know those people are seeking out a lot of people are seeking out the books that sort of and the media that sort of align with their values already and and I felt like one thing that we didn't have at least in in education writing was something that really looked at the history of school choice in a in a more neutral sort of journalistic fashion and I thought that well, one, I thought maybe no one will read that uh, because it's it's maybe fairly dry and not like a beach read. Um, but I thought it's a public service in a way, you know, and that is really what journalism is supposed to be about. And so I thought, well, hopefully it's not like holding up a door somewhere, but but it's a public service to put this, you know, together and and it's important. And it's, so it's worth trying to do that. Can I try one more question, Terry? Sure, and then, then I'll let you close it out if okay, you want to do sure, that. Uh, or we can continue. But and I, I hope uh Carrie you will um not think this is too personal. Um but uh, Terry has had children and 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 has grandchildren in the uh, Jefferson County school system. Um uh, I have uh, a, a grandson in elementary school in Jefferson County. So we, we everybody, it was sort of the uh, question I had um, last night to you in front of the audience about uh, who has uh, skin in the game. Um, is it just the legislature? Is it uh, teachers? Is it the parents? And whatever the answer. But so... For you, your children, and we've talked about your children, you're a parent, um, what kind of school do you want your children to go to? Not in Kentucky, not not in New York, uh, wherever that school is. What kind of education do you want your children to have? This is something that I think about a lot. And then my husband and I have debated because we have different sort of educational backgrounds. I was a public school kid. My mom was a teacher in the district that I went to, which is awkward and fun. Um, and uh, and my husband went to Catholic school, um, you know, and, and, and so we had kind of some of these conversations as we were having children and figuring out what we were going to, uh, you know, do with them. But But some of it doesn't even have to do with public or private, for me, a lot of it has to do with the environment of the school and what they offer, you know, and I have changed my mind on some things maybe as I've had children for longer. I have three and my oldest is 11 and you see sort of 
how different your children are from each other and that their needs maybe are not the same. And that can be sort of complicating because also as a parent running around just logistically, it's nice if they're in the same place. <laughs> but, um, but you know, so some of the things that I'm interested in are, you know, are they doing, as the kids get older, are they doing too much test prep? You know, are they spending too much time basically being taught how to take a test? For me, that's not a well-rounded education. You know, um, one of the consequences, I think, of of our country sort of push towards more and more standardized testing that kind of started with No Child Left Behind or maybe gained its steam with No Child Left Behind, um, you know, is that other things have been sort of squeezed out of the curriculum, you know, so a little less science, a little less history, a little less civics. And some of those things right now, civics and history seem quite important to me, you know, so uh, that matters to me. Are they doing art? You know, do they have some of these programs? But it's a balance because no school has everything that you might be interested in. And then you also, if you're partnering with another person, you have to figure out how important is this to him? And is he really opposed to something that I think is okay? And, you know, all those conversations. But but one of the things that that I thought was important for us was diversity, that I wanted the kids to have a different experience than mine, where I had grown up in a very rural, white, um, sort of conservative, more religious um, farming kind of community. And um, so when we moved to New York City and my kids started hitting school age, um, that was something I was looking for, that they would have this experience of going to school with people who were, you know, different than them. One of the trade-offs from that is that that school then had wonderful diversity, um, and my kids had this experience of being white children but in the minority and, you know, encountering different languages and, and cultural backgrounds, all of that. But they didn't have a library. They didn't have a playground. Um, at one point, my son came home and told me we were fundraising for basically like basketballs and things to play with on the concrete <laughs> where where you should maybe have the playground. Um, you know, they were going to fundraise for water fountains, like better water fountains wow. at some point. Yeah, that's one of the things my son came home but to But no tell library? Me. No library, um, which I found distressing. But so you kind of balance these things. I, I want a library. I think that's important. But, you know, and so those, so those are some of the choices that you make and, and not to go too long on this. But we moved recently out of the city because I have three kids and we had a two-bedroom apartment and we couldn't afford a house or something larger in New York City. So we moved. And one of the trade-offs, it went the other direction. Now we have a library and a band program and art and all these water things. Water fountains. You have water fountains. <laughs> we, we, have, we have working water fountains, as far as I know. And um, so we gained all of those things, but we lost a lot of the diversity of both racial and economic. Well, Bill Bill read my mind because one of I, while not on the book or on school choice, uh, at a couple of events, I've heard you talk about advice to parents in making that selection. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I thought your advice about what to look at versus what not to look at was really important. Can you do that little riff about what what gr school grades or ratings do compared to really engagement? 
One of the things I tell parents all the time when they ask me about this as an education reporter um, is to visit the school. I think that's one of the most important things is actually go and walk around that school and get a vibe from the people there. And you do get a vibe, the, don't yeah, you? You do right away. You do from the minute you hit yep, the door. Absolutely. You know, how are you welcomed? How do people talk to you? You know, and then ask questions while you're doing that. You know, ask the principal, hopefully you see that person. If you don't, maybe that's a sign of something. You know, ask some questions about how much time do they spend on things like test prep? How much recess do the kids get? You know, all of these kind of granular things in many ways are very important. And the test score piece for me is that's one piece of information. You know, it's one data point. And sometimes I see parents or I talk to friends and that's the one thing they're really looking at. And they're not thinking about things like, is my kid having two hours of homework a night in the first grade? You know, which is a real concern that I had from a parent once who had chosen a school based on test scores and didn't, I think, really understand how they were getting some of those test scores. But but in my personal situation, it's a good example of this because the school that we were in where it was more low income and more diverse and it was in the city and was lacking some resources actually had great test scores you know had for new york standards had good pretty good solid test scores and was a if you looked up on one of those real estate websites you know uh the the score that they try to give it had a pretty good score and maybe like it's a seven you know it's a scale of to ten and the one that we went to that has all of the resources and all of these sort of you know this trade-off that we we ended up making in a sort of strange fashion based on the housing market, um, it's rated lower and it has lower test scores. And so that's just an example of how it's one metric and it's one piece of information that you then have to, to line up against all these other things like recess and art and what's important to you. You know, some some families really want all the homework and and some families don't. That's a, that's a lot of a personal you know, and then of course that debate you make with your spouse because you don't that's, that's you don't necessarily important. yeah right, absolutely that, that's the one where you yeah. really have to get into and, it and water fountains and, and water yes fountains. well Kara Fitzpatrick thanks so much for joining us thanks for coming to Kentucky Bill you know I regard you as like one of my best colleagues and you know one of my best friends so this was kind of fun thanks. getting yeah, to it was. Do, do it with you we'll have to do it again absolutely uh, listeners I, do we have a deal for you do we have a deal for you. Uh, we are going to give away some of Kara's books. And uh, here's the way that you can reach out and get a free death of public school, colon, how conservatives won the war. My email is tbrooks at org. If you email me and make the title line, I want the book. Okay, that's the only ones I'm going to look at because I get too many emails. So you do the I want the book, uh, then we'll respond. And uh, you better do it quick because these are going to go like uh, hot pancakes, I bet. So uh, again, thanks for listening. Uh, I would encourage you to uh, check out the Kentucky Humanities Council's website, Bill Give us a little heads up. KYHumanities.org. Okay. And for you regular listeners, uh, we are getting ready to drop the 2024 Blueprint for Kentucky's Kids. As you know, that will contain our legislative policy priorities. Uh, We would encourage you to get on our website and start digging in. Uh, That session is just around the corner, and Kentucky kids need your voice as the session begins. This is Terry Brooks with Kentucky Youth Advocates. Thanks for listening.
Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.